Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you here today. My name is Joshua Kirstein. Joyful to get to be the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church and to labor in the teaching of the Word. And it's a great joy to do so. We're in a series through the letter of James. If you want to open your Bibles and begin to find your way to the back of your Bible, James is just after Hebrews, just before 1 Peter. We're calling this series Faith at Work. James is continually showing us what true saving faith looks like. It, it goes to work. It produces good God-honoring works. It doesn't go to sleep. It doesn't just wander and drift. It doesn't produce unrepentant sin. It, it produces a life that is uh, a reveal of God's work in and through us. And we continue to see these amazing different facets of what God ordained for this letter to entail and continue to be very blessed by its practicality. And I must say that of all the parts of this text, of this short letter, this particular text today is a favorite of mine. We're going to preach today and study uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, in a sermon that I'm calling, If the Lord Wills. I'm excited to preach God's Word today, and we have much to do. So we're just going to jump right in. Look with me at verse 13. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. The words, come now, is his way of saying, listen up. Come near and let's do business with this area of your life. When he says, you who say, this is a generalization to address a way of thinking uh, or a, a way of doing life. So there's a, there's a way that you can think about life or do life that, that fits this. And I think if all of us pay close attention this morning, we will identify in a big way with those who say or go about life this way. James is addressing here a mode of planning, a mode of planning that is necessary to navigate life and business. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Now, there's a, a business plan here. There's some organization, some thoughts gone into, here's how we're going to do our business in this coming season of the life that God's entrusted to us. The example given is a form of stewardship or management of the days God entrusts to us. There is a kind of preparation and planning and plan making that is the difference between those who truly steward their days, manage them, and those who don't. Many people were simply never taught growing up how to plan or manage their time or their money, or their goals. And the reality, though, is that planning and organization of these things is how we honor God by being prepared and being attentive to the things that are before us. It's how we make the most of the days He gives us. What this looks like is is this, um, or it can look like this. A company longs to 
make a profit and conduct business. To do that well, you don't just wake up and get in your truck and drive aimlessly and eventually plop down somewhere and hope to have a successful day of business. I mean, this is a haphazard way of conducting business and life. And the person who never stops to plan their day or their week is the person who often ends up wasting a lot of time, running late, missing out on making the most of the days that God entrusts to them. There's important planning and preparation we should do for our days. I've often argued that your Sunday morning worship starts during the week. It definitely starts Saturday night in the plans you make and how late you're going to stay up and what you can do on Saturday to prepare for Sunday so that you can wake up on time, get ready, get out the door on time, and be here to fellowship, to worship, to be present, to enjoy this high, high point of our week. It's the same day for getting ready for your work week. The preparations that are made the day before, the plans. For you stay-at-home moms to plan your day and organize, here's my objective for the week, for my day, here's where I need to be, here's what we need to do. And we don't just show up to those moments and say, now I'll begin to prepare. The best use of that time is with preparation and planning ahead of time. People will often or ignorantly say, I don't have time to do this or that. But do you realize, just simply, you have the same amount of time as everyone else. Think about that. You don't like often get cheated, like, oh, I only end up with 22 hours today. Everyone else got 24. I feel ripped off. No. You have the same amount of time as anyone and everyone else in a given day. The difference is, how do you choose to manage it and prioritize it or not? Church, we must recognize that God calls us to steward our lives well for His glory. That when we are saved from sin unto new life with Christ, there's a purpose to our days now that's not just self-serving. It's not just about me and what I want. My lives, my days now are for Him and are entrusted to me. They're precious, every one of them, to do His work and to fulfill His will. Stewardship, I've defined it for a while like this is our privileged opportunity to be faithful managers of God's provisions for God's glory. This is actually an area that many of us, if we're honest, need to work on. Being a good steward is making a plan for tomorrow. It's not going to bed before you have prayerfully considered your week or your day ahead. What are your priorities? What are your goals? What are things that need to get done? Not just according to you, but according to what God has called you to in His Word and the priorities He's given you. To not dedicate time to prayerfully making a plan and scheduling and even writing it out 
is to wake up and then haphazardly go about your day, often forgetting things you needed to do or appointments that you've made or objectives that you had. Let me point out a gross way that this impacts our spiritual life. A lack of organization of your day or week is why many hardly ever truly practice faithful prayer and Bible reading. It's not that you don't want to do this, but you never take the time to make sure your day is organized in such a way where you will do that prioritized thing before you do other things. Or at least to give it a prioritized time slot in your day and not treat it as something that you'll get to if everything else gets done. Because you and I both know that those days seem to be more often than not. What about your personal life? What compels you? No, let me say it this way. Some of you couples fail to have any real romance or quality time together in your marriage because you simply just stay busy. Or because you're just simply lazy. Put a ring on it and then you just got lazy. You don't make it a priority to plan and schedule sitters. uh, To make plans to travel or to go out. And as a result, this important area of your life just is a hopeful idea. And maybe once in a while comes to fruition. God did not trust us with the gospel so that we can sit back and just see what comes our way. We need to manage our days for the sake of the gospel and His glory well. The elders are are busy at this in the leadership and stewardship of our church, the leading of this flock. We spent eight hours yesterday on our day off catching up with much needed planning and preparation in addition to a very full week of ministry. Why? Because the 2019 budget needs to be worked on. Why? So that we don't go into 2019 and haphazardly have income that comes in and income that's spent and then all of a sudden we realize we're, we're backwards or we're behind. That's not being a good steward of what God's entrusted to us. So preparation and planning is essential. I would encourage you now in the middle of November to begin your prayerful preparation planning for the stewardship of your finances in 2019. If you're starting that January 5th, you're probably starting it too late. Now is the time to be considering those things, to be considering the priorities of life, the giving of our first fruits to the the local church as God's instructed to be considering our bonuses this year and maybe our end-of-year giving. That, those are things you should be considering prayerfully now. Not after Christmas, not after we were gluttons in spending, but preparation of going, Lord, this is all belongs to you. How do I steward it well in preparation and planning for your purposes? God has entrusted us with our days and resources to be managed, not just to be endured, in Matthew chapter 25, 14 through 30, Jesus tells a parable of some servants who had entrusted their money to be invested and multiplied. The, the servants were entrusted with the boss's money. 
most managed the money actively and did what they could do. They made the most of their days with investing. But one, out of fear or just laziness, just endured the time period given, buried it, did not produce any gain. He did not manage it. He just protected it. He just sat on it. He just got through the time given to him. And this is what many of us are guilty of. We're not managing our marriage or our children or our health or our money or our days or ministry. We're just going through our days looking forward to the next holiday or graduation. Church, this must change. We are to be faithful stewards of the precious gift of life He entrusts to us every day. Every day my prayer life tries to include a recognition that God has woken me up today. He's, he's purposed me for a new day. That my thinking and my priorities would be focused on that reality. I would not take today for granted, for He might not give me tomorrow. <clears throat> We're to be faithful stewards of the people He's put in our life. To know and to love and to lead. Of the resources and gifts and money he's entrusted to us to press out for his kingdom first and foremost. So understand that James is not rebuking people for making a plan. Or even not rebuking them for their desire to make a profit. As often this text is misinterpreted as such. No, James' rebuke is not what is being said but is in what is not being said in the plan making that is problematic. It is in the way it is said or practiced that is full of man and devoid of God. See, there is a planning that we can do that puts an unhealthy dependence and hope on our plans. There's a way by which we can plan and hope and prioritize that essentially removes God from the picture. It loses sight of what God is doing in any given moment, day, or season in our lives. And when it doesn't line up with our plans or hopes or goals, we end up either very disappointed or full of worry. We can even be sinfully resentful of God for not causing our plans or the things we hoped for to work out the way we had built them up in, inside of us and worked so hard for them to be the way we want them to be. See, there is a type of planning that is done without true contingencies that arrogantly seems to represent that the one who is omniscient omnipotent and right in all that we want is us instead of God. What we need is a sobering reality check about who we are and who He is to help us navigate our planning and stewardship 
that we should do and practice well and to make the most of the days God gives us for his glory. This is what James wants to give his hearers next. And so this is where we go. Look with me at the second part of verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So there's an arrogance in the planning by which we overbuild our hopes and our expectations on the work we've done to plan. But what he's reminding us here is, is you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. God has ordained that we are finite creatures, meaning we have limits to what we know, see, or can understand. We are limited in view. We do not know, nor are we in control of what tomorrow will bring. We don't have the ability to look into the future or to know what's coming like God can and does. His view of things is so glorious, it is outside of time. His infinite insight is far superior to ours. By which any example I would give you to try to show the contrast falls flat on its face. But I'll try. Imagine standing in the middle of a forest, a very heavily wooded forest, and you can see around you maybe so many feet, or depending on how spaced the trees are, maybe so many yards. But you have no view for what's beyond that scope. If there's a cliff, or a pack of bears, or a fire raging, we don't, we don't see beyond that limited scope. But God has such an insight of what is all around. It, it, isn't it amazing you're watching a movie and they show this climactic moment and they show the person and kind of what's right in front of them and then they pan out to that 10,000 foot view and you're like, uh-oh. Like this person has no clue what's coming. I mean, that big view, that, that thorough view, that, that's God's view. And, and we have no, we have nothing close to that. And so we are arrogant to over hope and, and build on what we believe is coming or want to come. This is James' point. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Our view is so limited. Solomon said in Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It is arrogance. It is boasting to say, tomorrow we will do this. That is a statement without clarity or qualification that is arrogant to the nth degree. It is to claim something we don't have the right or the ability to claim. Because you and I don't know what tomorrow will bring. We must add to that phrase, if the Lord wills. Because it's ultimately up to Him. While many days and hours and minutes go the way we thought they would, there are also many that don't, right? I mean, you don't know when that headache will wreck you. Or when a car will T-bone you. Or when 
you will trip and fall and break a bone or catch a cold or get an unexpected fine or bill or bonus. You don't know when you will meet your future spouse or, or what day will be your last day with one of your children. You don't know that. And to say that you do is to claim the inside of God by which you do not have. It's arrogance. It's sin. It's pride. There's an innumerable amount of complexities of forces and events and people and circumstances that are all beyond your control every day. And they're so variable and and so utterly uncontrollable that it's beyond any man to ascertain the future or design the future or control the future. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6.34, Therefore, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Church, we do not know what tomorrow holds. But we do know who holds tomorrow. To worry about what is coming is to not trust in the one who holds tomorrow. To worry about tomorrow is to have a grip on what we want instead of a trust in what he will ordain. Meditate on that, please. And let's add the next layer that James brings and we'll circle back to that. Not only are we limited in view of what's coming, but we are temporary in time. Consider with me James' next statement in verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We we see this emphasis given in, in many other places in Scripture because it is a truth that is so needed for us to grasp And yet so often do we forget its reality of just how short this life is and can be. We really do all too casually pursue our days and arrogantly assume we will live to see the ripe old age of pick your favorite number. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The fact is that our time in this kingdom, in this domain, in these bodies, in this city, with these people doing this work is very short. Psalm 103, 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. 
for the wind passes over it and it's gone. Its place knows it no more. First Chronicles 29.15, David's prayer and dedication to the temple. He acknowledges the reality as they're investing all of this into this beautiful new reality coming, this, this temple is building. For we are strangers before you, sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. We're only here for a short time. Our future, our hope, our home is with God, for those who call Jesus Lord. It is with Him in holy heaven, in eternity with Him. Hebrews 13, 14 and 16, through 16, For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Through Him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that we that acknowledge His name, to not neglect to do good and to share what we have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Are we guilty of bunkering down, of investing in, in our me kingdom and mortgage and retirement and reality? Or are we trusting God? Are we pressing out what He entrusts to us for the good of others? We look forward to the eternal city of God, the the new heavens and the redeemed earth. But in the meantime, through Him, through Christ, we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. We do not neglect to do good or share what we have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So there is then a plan-making and stewardship that is temporary. And it is in this temporary life, empowered by God, and it should be all about God. And yet it should still be engaged in this world and the people he puts before us in this time. If we can embrace that we are here for a moment, compared to the eternity that awaits us, we will, meet, we will be much more ready to embrace God's will for today or tomorrow or this life and not overcling to the things that we have set our mind on to still happen. The things that we are guilty of, if we're honest, holding God hostage for. Oh, if you're a good God, then you will let me have this or fulfill this or walk down this aisle or experience this thing in earth or this whatever. We'll have a much looser grip on those things and a much stronger grip for God's will for our days. When we really begin to get this, we begin to correct, have a correct understanding of our life on earth. If you have yet to trust your life to Jesus Christ, then you don't have the promise of eternity with God because you are not reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. You stand condemned. You stand guilty in your sin. This is why the people of the world are so focused and dead set on partying and playing hard because the now is all they have. 
This is why there's such a tight grip on their plans and on their lifestyle, because it's all they have. They don't know hope in Jesus and for eternity. This is why in this life, people who only have the present are often riddled with worry for what is coming that they cannot see. For what they could lose. But in Christ, we approach our days and our life and other people differently. When Jesus is our victor and the promises of God is the rock beneath our feet. Amen? In Christ, we get to loosen our grip on the here and now. Consider this interaction that Jesus had in Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Underline that. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Is that surely not the motto of the lost and broken world? He told them then a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Is this not the position of the person who is without faith and lost? Sounds like some good planning, some good like, hey, I get a rest, and there's an overconfidence in those plans, and then that kingdom reality coming to fruition. The whole thing's built on that. But watch what's coming. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Talk about the wake-up call of all wake-up calls. He declares, yeah, you're done tonight. It's over. Your days were numbered before you began, and it ends today. So all this glorious stuff and merriment, whose else will it be? Because it ain't going to be yours. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How true is this parable of us? How easily we get caught up in overbuilding and worrying about the present kingdom we live in when it is only for a time and is gone so soon. Our time could come at any moment. 
We are fools to assume we will live long lives. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. This life is our opportunity to live in such a way that is to show that this world and its prizes are not our God, but that God is our prize. Let's skip verse 16 and come back to it. Look with me at verse 16 and 17 first. Verse 16, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So there's a planning that's happening here among these folks that is arrogantly devoid of an understanding that God's in charge, that God's the one who holds tomorrow, and that God's will is what they should want to be done. And so there's an an overconfidence in the plans that I've made will come to fruition and it's all good and I've put it all on this. All such boasting is evil, he says. We're arrogant in our flesh. And all of us struggle with this. Pride of the flesh will never be totally beyond us until we are in glory. While this is the fight of the believer that we suit up for every day in Christ to fight against the flesh and live for God's glory purposes, Without Christ, this is a, the, your flesh is a daily binge for those who are still dead in sin. It's all you know. It's all you do. Our lost world with its, is so bold to declare that we are in charge of our own fate. How often do you hear that? You're in charge of your own fate. You can do anything you put your mind to. That is the evil boasting this is speaking of. That is a thinking that is devoid of the reality of God. The sovereignty of God. It's a a prideful and arrogant way of thinking, especially when we slow to consider who we are in comparison to who God is. Why is it arrogance to boast in our plan making, to overly be confident in it? Why is it arrogance to be overly confident in what we hope for, what we hope will happen? Because it is God alone who authors, numbers, and defines our days. So who am I? To boast or to be overly confident in our planning is to ignore the one who is really in charge of these things. Consider just how dependent we are on God for life, breath, and the working of our bodies and our world so that anything we end up doing was even able to be done. We're so dependent on Him. First, consider with me the fact that God has authored our life. In the very beginning of mankind, Genesis 2-7, the Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. A few days ago, for our midweek gathering, Steve, our student director, was our teacher about um, just the omnipresence of God. 
And uh, just the beauty of his sovereignty. And we studied Psalm 139. My group in particular enjoyed some meditation on the scripture, not only in our group time that night, but in the days since then to follow. I want to read it to you again. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as there was none of them. Have you noticed how often people, when a loved one is facing death, or all of a sudden um, present with some kind of disease or accident, whereby their life is on the line. And people talk about God in such a way where we need to go to prayer so that we can get Him to intervene and extend the days of this person we love. That that's how their faith goes to work. I'm not saying we should not pray for healing and good over the people we love. We should bring our prayers boldly. But what must be absolutely seen and through on all that is God has already numbered this person's days. In His perfect will, they are set before they begin. Do we get that? Do we trust God with that? That your last day with your spouse might be today. With your child tomorrow. With your right leg Thursday. Whatever. Do we acknowledge that He is the one who authors and ordains these things? Or do we treat him as such a way where we're trying to puppet him, convince him to, to add, like, like there is this cosmic battle and he's on one end of the field and the bad guys are on the other. We just got to rally to get him to make things go the good way. Job 27.3 As long as my breath is in me, the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. Have you sat next to a loved one when their days seem to be at their end? And you wake up in the morning and you look at them and they're still here? And you have that feeling like, Praise God. One more day. Do you realize we should treat every day that way? It is our arrogance or our lack of understanding of these things that does not see the nature of the fact that 
by his sovereign will, he's entrusted us with one more day. And what would that do to how you live today or tomorrow? Job 34, 14 through 15, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. That he's actively continuing us into will to cease to do that, we're just done. Psalm 17, 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Psalm 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Do you see how who the active, dominant, sovereign rule is over tomorrow, and yet we are arrogant to somehow think that we've got any kind of control over that? Does that mean we don't plan? No, we've already covered that. We look to be good stewards, faithful manager of what God's trusted, but we do it in such a way where we have it open-handed, where there is contingency, where there's a readiness to be moved by God as He wills. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Christ is upholding the universe by the word of His power. Colossians 1.17, Paul says of Christ that in Him all things hold together. The The workings of your body are continuing from one minute ago because God wills that you continue. Church, these truths of the sovereignty of God over our lives and all things should humble us not to be arrogant or prideful in planning, but humble before God in that He is the one who ordains our days and our ways. Amen? He is the one who literally is holding us together this very moment, keeping the sun from incinerating us. We really don't know how sensitive that whole thing really is. It's very sensitive. And we lose if it gets out of whack. Keeping, he's keeping the microscopic elements of the earth and the sky in place. He's the one who keeps us moment by moment from falling into the abyss or floating into the atmosphere. That's his work, his will. The wisest man to ever live said it this way in Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Can I say to those of you who want to overswing in bathing in these truths, that just because God is at the helm of life itself and ordaining our days, ordering our days, doesn't mean we get to sit back and do nothing. We are still to heed His command. What is His command on us? Well, it's throughout His written word, but specifically to the church, that we would go, be active in making disciples of the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that He has commanded us. And to know that He's with us always till the end of the age. What these truths do for us is remind us how to make plans and yet not become prideful or arrogant or put our hope or joy in the planning, but in God. 
that we'd get really good at being our best to steward it well and then to constantly take our hands off it and say, it belongs to you, God. It's yours to do with it what you want. Put my sweat and tears into this for a lifetime, this degree, this family, this automobile, this whatever. It belongs to you. You do with it what you want. It's yours, not mine. That's that constant thing we must do. That's verse 15. We're going to come back to that. Verse 17 first. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It is this simple. Obey God or sin. This is a never-ending crossroads in our daily life. God's will for us is clearly revealed in His written word, His commands, the principles of His scriptures. We are responsible to obey the law of God written on our hearts and the revealed will of God written in Holy Scripture so that we do not sin. By the grace of God, He's empowered us with the Holy Spirit, new life in Christ, to do this. There's two ways we disobey God. We do whatever God has made clear we shouldn't do. Don't do this, and yet we still do it. That's the sin of commission. Or, we don't do what God has made really clear we should do. That's the sin of omission. The sin of commission is a sin that we act and commit in word, thought, or deed. It's the sin of commission is the sin of actively doing something that God prohibits. This is typically when we think of sin, the things we think of. Committing sin, commission. Acting, doing. But the sin of omission is what James has in mind in this verse that we must do business with this morning. Whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, for him it is sin. A sin of omission is a sin that is the result of not doing something God's word clearly teaches we should do. Failing to do what God requires. In the New Testament, the classic example given by Christ is the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man is clearly in common distress, hurt, hurting the side of the road and what would be perceived as good and righteous people pass by him. They're too busy doing other things. They don't do what they should do. Just help this guy. The conclusion of the parable that Jesus tells about the faithful steward gets to this. Luke 12, 41 through 48. The servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know, who did what, and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. From him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. Sadly, James 4.17 is where many who claim to have faith in God as Lord and Savior prove that they don't. Instead of good God-honoring works, their lives are a constant doing what God has made clear they should not do. 
who are not doing the thing that God says they should do. Church, true faith in God obeys God's revealed command and doesn't usurp it or put it away. So let me just ask you straight up this morning. Are there things you know that God does not want you to do, but you continue to do them? Are there things that God has clearly called you to do, but you continue to not do them? These things need not continue in this way, but be repented of. To agree with God that it is sin of commission or omission, and to turn from that practice unto a new practice that honors God. If your faith is real, that will be your reality. If your faith is fake, you will continue to do what he commands you not to do, or not do what he commands you to do. Your faith will not go to work. We must repent of these things. And the gift of a sermon like this, not in any way me, but the words of God preached, whereby we can be greatly convicted by the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit, is a great gift indeed. My prayer is that you would It would be your joy to serve Him and obey Him, that your faith at work produces joyful and faithful obedience. That you will do whatever it takes to honor Him, no matter what it costs you. He's not interested in your excuses by which we love to say, well, that's going to be really hard. Well, that's going to cost me a lot to do it that way. You will do it no matter what it might mean to other relationships. For no one is higher or more important to you than God. I pray that if if this is the case for you, that you will go to prayer this week, you will seek counsel from others, mature believers he's put in your life, so that the application of repentance is done. And that in our action of repentance, we don't make unnecessary hurts by ignorantly or immaturely acting on these things. We go to prayer, we seek counsel of his word and other believers, help us on that road, but we be active. This brings us to James' counsel of what must be included in our planning and living in this temporary life that we now live. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. When we consider what faith at work looks like in the life of the truly saved and sanctified of God, we see many markers, such as love for God, repentance from sin, humility, devotion to the reading of God's Word, and the doing of God's Word, steadfast prayer, sacrificial love for others, including the marginalized and the lost, 
separating ourselves from the priorities and the ways of the world. But nothing more clearly puts on display our faith at work, our devotion to Jesus as Lord, our commitment to glorify God, than our desire to do the will of God. When we rightly see the one whom is over all things and for whom all things are for, we will want his will over our own. When we see how grossly immature we are and self-serving we are, we will want his will and not our own. There are simply too many factors that God has in view that we don't. There are too many reasons that God has in mind that we who are fleshly and unrighteous don't. Our will is never better than His. Never. He is perfect and holy, and we are not. Can you imagine what your home would be like if you truly, fully, and continually lived by the will of your toddler? It will look like this. Because to a toddler, this is the great use of peanut butter in the kitchen floor. Can you imagine the schedule you would keep if given to the will of your toddler? Can you imagine the food you would eat? Lollipops all day, every day. Can you imagine the things you would do? Do you see how immature and unwise and selfish they are and therefore your life would be? Do you realize how fundamentally short of this illustration fails in comparison to the perfection and wisdom of God and the wickedness of man, selfishness of man. We can move that image off the screen. It is by God's grace that we come to a place where we will join the saints in saying, not my will, but yours be done. Not once, but all the time. Consider with me some of the many, many scriptures by which this is modeled well for us. David says, hey, as I read these, just let them wash over you to draw out of you a new longing to truly want God's will over your own. Please, Consider this with me. David says in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In Psalm 143, 10, David says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. 
let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Jesus says in Mark 3.35, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. John 7.17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.2, So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 1 John 2.17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, after taking on flesh in the Incarnation, shows us great devotion to live for God the Father's will. He says in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own will, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The dual nature of of Jesus, fully man, fully fully God, the flesh is represented in this moment to show us great submission to the will of God. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then it may be one of the most critical, on one of the most critical days in all of human history. These words were uttered in the most important crossroads. For without this, we would have no hope. Matthew 26, 39, going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want you to see with me the emphasis in James 4, verse 15, is yet another test of true saving faith to show itself in the works and words of the believer. The truly saved and set free have died to sin and self and now live for the glory of God by doing the will of God and no longer striving to live for oneself in the ways of the world. No matter how uncomfortable it gets, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much sacrifice is included, you don't live for your own agenda anymore, nor the workings or the trophies of this world. You joyfully live for the will of God and the glory of God. Paul emphasizes that we live out our faith, not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Ephesians 6, 6. And in Romans 7, 22, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. 
Jesus emphasizes this in his model of the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The model of yielding prayer is in that prayer. That all of our prayers would be bold with what's on our hearts, but would be covered in a yielding to God to say, not my will, but your will be done. The opposite is true as well. If you're disinterested and not motivated by doing God's will, then likely you are prideful and arrogant to think that your way is best. It is the person who likes the idea of being saved by Jesus, but doesn't want to be ruled by him. This cannot be. Your faith goes to work. It trusts in God. It has faith in him or it doesn't. It's real or it's not. Two quick points of clarity in how essential for our faith at work this practice of constantly stating stating if the Lord wills is so vital to us. Number one, it is a correct attitude and longing to have toward the plans we make and the hopes we have in this life. Declaring the truth if the Lord wills is an essential practice over our plan making or the desires we have because it corrects our futile and finite thinking. To ultimately say, I want the perfect will of God more than I want what I've prepared for or planned for. Correct my thinking to understand these things will happen according to God's perfect will. I'm a fool to cling to anything other than that. So when we say, I hope to see you again, if the Lord wills, that that person is not just being like, dark and gloomy or I'd really like to see this deal close if the Lord wills is a way to remind ourselves who is rightly and ultimately over all things it doesn't change the good hope we have but it does put it in a right place in our heart meaning it trusts it to the Lord where it's best, where his view is best. How naive we are to say, no, no, my futile limited plans for this are better than yours in all that you see and have in mind, all of your perfect righteousness as opposed to my wicked selfishness. Consider when we don't yield to his will, it's like saying, no, no, God, hey, this one, I'm going to do it my way. It's going to be good. No, it's not. The most famous and valuable Proverbs come to mind here. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's a way of saying, yield to his will. And he will direct your paths. 
He will make them straight. Some translations say. In all your ways, acknowledging him means you want to submit to his will. You trust him. Your faith is in him, not in your plans, not in your hopes. Number two, the practice of this helps us evaluate our planning from a biblical perspective, meaning it allows you to slow down in your plan making to ask, is this plan or hope even in line with God's revealed will in Scripture? Church, it it is a true joy to know and trust in the perfect will of God. To know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Let us not manipulate that verse to mean they all work out to the good that I hope for, which is candy canes and lollipops and roller coasters. No, they all work out for the perfect will of God and the good He ordains for us. That's a far better good than the things that I want to claim. Do you get that? Hope you do. Why would we want to live in the midst of a complex world and try to order all that we have when we have absolutely no idea of what the future is going to bring and can't control any of it in any way? And why would we want to try to cancel out the one who does control everything and will and we'll do so for his glory and for our good. Why would we want to cancel that? We need to repent of any of this attitude. I pray that we learn to truly yield to the will of God and long for it. To close, let me give you this to meditate on this week. Truly, it is not just saying God's will be done. Like a begrudging child who says, Okay, Mom, Dad, but doesn't really want to do their will. No, to have faith in God is to submit to His will in such a way, now pay close attention here, where you are asking for His will to be your will. Not my will be done. I've stewarded and planned and prepared what you put before me as best I can. Now I submit it to you because I would be an absolute fool to want my will. No, I want your will for this. I yield my will and I plead to know and have and enjoy and join you in your will. That's really what this is getting after. I pray you begin to know and taste what that is like, that yielding prayer over everything we bring before him. A constant surrender to God and trusting it to Him in a way that say, I want your perfect will, not mine. And when we start to really taste that and live there, oh man, this is great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the work you're doing in our church. Thank you for the gift of your written word in our in our language, to know it and understand it and study it like we do, that it would be like honey on our lips. The Holy Spirit's work in each individual in this room today would be mighty and potent and strong. That there would be real conviction and a glorious, wonderful repentance that, that honors you, lives surrendered to you, 
For some today, maybe in saving faith, to die to self and live for Christ, to see the beauty of the gospel gift of Jesus' blood in our place, of your amazing grace, that we live for you the rest of our days, Lord, for your will to be done in us, in our church, in this community, and nation, in this world. It belongs to you. It is for you that we live every day, every moment you ordain for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. and.